0: Welcome to the worldwide podcast. I'm Miles Irving. And, um, in a minute I'll introduce a conversation with Leanne Townsend, who, uh, actually I chatted to a few weeks ago before the coronavirus thing kicked off. But I think you'll, I think you'll find the themes are really quite apt and topical, especially, um, with what seems to be happening at the moment. Um, as I've mentioned in previous weeks, but there's a real interest and, uh, pursuit of local food at the moment. And, um, we've just done our first deliveries this week to the outlets for the Kent food hub in Folkestone and Ashford in Kent. And that's part of a bigger network called um, the open food network. Um, And it's really exciting to see all the little boxes being made up from different suppliers around Kent, which uh, are are suddenly finding a flurry of interest from uh, new customers and probably people have been meaning for a long time to seek out local food outlets. But, um, a combination of people having time on their hands to do the seeking and also people wanting to avoid going out to supermarkets and uh, potentially exposing themselves to uh, infection with the coronavirus. I think it's all it's all sort of conspiring to, um, to sort of lead people to that path to uh, seeking out local food. And yeah, you know, we can only hope that that's something that continues to get strengthened in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, and uh, that obviously relates to the, the sort of rural development theme, which you'll you'll note we we pick up quite a lot, because um, obviously most food does come from rural areas, and um, there's a lot of people trying to make livelihoods around that. And uh, for us, it's just really exciting to see wild foods just getting to the general public. Um, so I'll just say a little bit about Leanne. She is a social scientist. She works at the James Hutton Institute, and she's certainly trying to steer her research towards foraging as a topic in itself, which makes her quite an interesting social scientist because, uh, strictly speaking, as a forager, that means she is her own um, subject for research. Um, that must be fairly unique. And Leanne also runs a thing called Wild Food Stories where she does events and courses around foraging and wild food. So do check that out. Um, it'll be on the um, the link, as ever, on the www.forager.org.uk forward slash podcast page, where there are always notes and um, links to to uh, the speaker and, and uh, more information about topics covered in each episode of the podcast. Okay, well, that's it. And without further ado, we'll get on to the conversation with Leanne Townsend. We obviously met face to face at the um, AOF meetup recently.
1: Yeah, but there's also
0: yeah. things I don't know, which which we could have had a lengthy email exchange and chat But the but but the point of this is to to uh, is to document on, on ongoing conversations with people who are, you know, sharing the same world in some way. Um,
1: okay.
0: So yeah, I can find out more about what you do in this context without it seeming like it's a setup for the podcast. So tell me, Leanne, blah blah blah, <laughs> all that kind of stuff you know i actually don't know that much about what you do
1: i suppose the first thing is that um there are different strands to me or to what i do there's almost this kind of split personality thing going on
0: multifaceted
1: are you multifaceted personality syndrome maybe um so yeah my kind of um career or day job for the last how long have i been at this now maybe 15 years more Um, is academic research. And I'm a social scientist. And my kind of my main area of interest is rural communities and rural economies, rural development, if you like. Mm -hmm. So that's been my bread and butter for the last, you know, over a decade. Um, I worked at the University of Aberdeen for a good five, six years doing this kind of research and we we had this big research center funded through the u k research councils all about digital um tech digital technologies and their impact on rural areas, whether those are good or bad or you know but towards the end of the funding for that my um my funding ran out basically so being an academic researcher until you you get that coveted lectureship which everybody's aiming for it's quite an uncertain and unsettling kind of um work to be in because these contracts are always fixed term. You're always facing the end of your contract redundancy. I went through the redundancy process many times and usually ended up getting a bit more funding. But um, towards uh, towards the end of the, the research centre, the funding just dried up. I did a bit of work in uh, a bit of kind of consultancy research working in Kenya, looking at the impact of solar energy that had been provided to a a rural village that had previously had no electricity so that was really enjoyable work to do but during that time I was sort of coming towards unemployment if you like most academic researchers will move around the country or even further afield for their career to sort of if you like to chase that coveted uh, lectureship which gives you the permanent contract I wasn't really in a position to do that my husband's got a well-established gardening business here
0: which is obviously
1: very important to him um and we have kids and and so we're very rooted to where we live and so that wasn't an option for me um in as the the work got smaller and smaller and my hours got smaller and smaller I turned more and more to foraging which had been an interest of mine anyway but I kind of just Threw myself into it, if you like, and um, became much more immersed in it and in the, the wilds of my local environment here. And I'd got to the point where I thought, this is, this is what I want to do. But then at, the, at that same time, this perfect uh, job for me came up at the James Hutton Research Institute in Aberdeen as well, which I couldn't really say no to. So I'd got to the point where I really wanted to start teaching other people foraging. And I just decided, well, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> so I work as a full-time social scientist, but I also run a small business doing uh, foraging instruction workshops, various kind of events, and so on, which keeps me very busy, as I'm sure you can understand.
0: That's brilliant. I mean, I was just thinking when when you were saying all that um, about your academic career and how you couldn't chase the work like a lot of people do, um, but given that your 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 particular area of interest is, is rural development and, you know, people, people living in the, in the countryside. And I was just thinking what, what, what you ended up saying by you're too rooted to chase the work. I yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but I I would think that probably the, the output of, of just a, a brief inquiry, let alone in-depth academic research to say, what is the one thing that is lacking in rural communities these days? Uh, it would be rootedness wouldn't it i mean
1: yes there is an awful lot of coming and going so there's you know there's a lot of uh, research that goes on in that kind of in migration out migration and that's one of my research interests anyway um and obviously living in a rural community i see it for myself people moving out here chasing a kind of a lifestyle dream if you like and not always seeing it through or not always being able to see it through for whatever reason um, but then there are people like me who I, I kind of al- always knew I wanted to get back to the countryside and now we're here it's not just a practical decision it's it's very much like I can't imagine being anywhere else um, yeah. it's home which is nice I every, not everybody is able to say that so I know that I'm lucky in that sense and that was more important than giving it all up to to chase a career if you like uh, it's, it's it's about finding another way which suits all of us and allows us to to stay here really.
0: Yeah, I mean I I just think that um I mean you've 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 said about home there and obviously that's we already know that's a talking point in terms of your research and what i have open to look into more. But I just think it's so important that the, the um the kind of downside of of academia, I'm sure we'd all have agree is just this this sort of endlessly questioning things and and then all you really want to do is generate another question so you can endlessly question it again and carry on with this thing which which is not um i mean we could have a discussion about the the, the idea of 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 exploring ideas for their own sake but i'm not sure that's what that is it's it's, it's more futile than that in a way uh, and i think i think um there's a desperate need for um academic inquiry to be yielding up really tangible ways forward or, or ways even you know what we need is ways we don't need a bunch of facts we need yeah th- i
1: agree
0: and and i love the fact that, that in pursuing uh academic research around the social science of, of people living in the country you are embodying part of the way forward by saying i'm too rooted to chase the job i just i think yeah. that's neat, actually. <laughs>
1: I'm almost my own case study if you like, you know.
0: And, um well, you're, here's one here's one we made earlier like they used to say on Blue Pizza.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um but it's not always like that. So I did some research on Jura. Have you have you been to Isla or Jura on the west coast of Scotland?
0: Jura, I've not been to I've been to uh up to Lewis and Harris and uh Mull. So no, I'm yeah. not. Yeah.
1: Okay. Okay. So Isla's the famous one for obviously for the distilleries and for some of the the better-known whiskies and Jura's, it's kind of small sister island. Um, so in order to get to Jura, you need to take two ferries. It's mm. quite remote, um, and it's, it's absolutely stunningly beautiful. It's got something like 200 people, 2,000 deer, uh, and its industries are largely tourism um, – What's what am I trying to say here? Kind of gamekeeping, the, the, the stuff around shooting and yeah. that kind of industry – and um and the whiskey so when i was doing research there i was actually the research was angled around looking at the impacts of what it means to not have good internet connectivity for these rural communities Uh, and there were a lot of families that had moved over to jura chasing this kind of this dream of of wilderness if you like very sort of poetic and um and worthy, but finding after living there for maybe one, two years, that they just couldn't hack it. I mean, we're talking really seriously remote, a tiny little shop that's only open for part of every day, um, and two ferries just to get onto, onto the mainland. But what this does, the impact this has on those local communities is quite um, damaging, because you get this kind of flux of, of the population going up and down. And at the time that I visited and did this research, the school, the primary school was in danger of being closed if one more family was to leave the island. And of course, then what you've got is kids having to travel by kind of car, then ferry just to get to school every day. So that's the kind of impacts you're looking at with this, you know, in migration and out migration from rural areas. So rural areas do need a lot of support. And uh, research, but as you said, research, which actually has a pathway to making some kind of difference rather than just opening more and more questions and not really doing anything good
0: yeah i mean down down south i'd say um there's almost the opposite problem that that uh i think that um it's not it's very very difficult for people to move into the countryside um oh yeah okay you know, house prices and so on. And, and um, there's a whole movement around land reform. And, and there's like a magazine called The Land Magazine. I don't know if you've come across it. Uh, and a group called Chapter 7. They've been looking at, at trying to uh, get the law changed from what's called, um, I don't think this is the right term, but it's sort of place-based planning where certain areas are just out out of bounds because they're greenbelt, you can't build there no matter what, yeah. to criteria-based planning where low-impact buildings could, would get the, get the go-ahead based on the fact that people are moving into this low-impact dwelling in order to pursue a, a, a rural livelihood. Yeah. The idea okay. that the, 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 you know, the countryside is basically closed because that's where people with money go because they can afford a house. And the yes. acts that happen there are basically um, Airbnb, gastropubs, mm-hmm. and 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 industrial farming. Yeah, yeah, you know, that sounds familiar. For for us, like the the, the, the in the main, um, rural development basically means turning your outbuilding into an Airbnb. Right. It, okay. That is a shame.
1: Yeah.
0: It doesn't really have, you know, when we first approached a funding body with regard to what we do, they, they, there was nothing there that they could engage. They said, we've got a budget for agriculture. You're not agriculture because, and they read me out the uh, the definition of agriculture yeah. and it involved planting stuff basically. Uh, well, I forget what it was, but we didn't fit. It was, it was plowing and planting or something like that. I said, you're not agriculture, so you can't have this pot of money. And all the pots of money, they didn't really allow any opening for, for, um, for certainly what we were doing. But it seemed to me it probably was closed to a lot of things. Um, whereas, um, I don't know, the, like the whole crofting thing, it, it seems to me possibly up in Scotland, everything is a bit more geared towards it in that sense. But, but, but you've then got this big issue of, of the remoteness, as you say.
1: Yeah, yeah. So two of the projects I'm working on at the moment are working, we're working with um, crofting communities. And again, those projects are around this idea of the impacts of digital technologies. And one thing I'm quite interested in is, digi- I think digital technologies is one example, but the example you gave of kind of possible pots of money is another, is that these um, modern initiatives are favouring The big guys, so they're favoring the large scale farms, for example. So, research that we've done on digital technologies in agriculture have shown, and work by colleagues all around Europe have also shown, and in Canada, that technologies are being designed with big farmers in mind, because those are the farmers that have got the money to invest in large pieces of kit and lots of expensive software, for example. Um, But they've also got the acres to get a return on those big investments more quickly. So it's really just another way that small farmers are being squeezed out because we've also got evidence now that in order to embrace these these technologies and get the kind of the profit that naturally comes from uh, some of these things, that farmers are buying out even more land from the small farmers. So the small farmers are getting even smaller and the the large farmers are are getting larger. Um, So there's a a concept that's of big interest to the European Commission and to lots of the research that we're doing, which is responsible research and innovation. And it's this idea that, you know, you're not just thinking about profits when you're designing these technologies and other kinds of innovations, but you're actually thinking responsibly and trying not to create big divides and, you know, um, disempower or disadvantage people. But unfortunately, those kinds of divides exist just as much in rural areas as they do in urban areas, I think.
0: I've been tinkering away with a, with a, a sort of critique of technology in general, you know, like what, is, what are the issues here that make technology not a force for good? Um, and I think for me, it all boils down to the fact that, um, I mean, it's because technology is, is the product of abstract thinking to begin with. It seems like these devices and these methods that we, that we come up with, that we're calling t- technology, have as a basic quality of, of them, um, abstraction. So if, okay. if, you, if you look at it, there's, there's a depresencing. There's like an mm. absence involved. All mm. And so, I mean, I don't know that much about these digital technologies, but I know some of it is like surveillance, you know, like th- these things moving around, yeah. looking at everything all the time and i just think that's so horrible because like th- th- that used to be feet on the ground and eyes observing yes. so there was someone yeah. there and then they would do something because they were there having seen th- this they would do that you know and now it, yeah it's creating absence it's a rolling thing of saying let's there's fewer and fewer people there there used to be people here yeah it's
1: kind not- of dehumanizing in a
0: way if that's the right term well, it's it's using the, you're coining a different way of using the word dehumanizing. Yeah.
1: yeah, I think so, by like removing the humans.
0: We're not just making the humans less human. We're just making the humans not there. And then with yeah. the idea that population is growing and growing and growing and growing, and yet there's fewer people on the land, this is madness. One of the effects yeah. of more people is fewer people. That's nuts, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But- well, also something we're interested in is, the you know, these these technologies, they're all about making things more efficient and faster and more productive and more profitable. But actually what they're doing is they're um, replacing humans. So, you know, precision farming technology, it, it does the work that humans have previously done, you know. So the the, propon- the the people that are pushing these technologies and saying, they're brilliant, we all need to, to embrace them, uh, are arguing that then you can... You can redeploy your staff in other parts of the farm. But when we talk to farmers, that's not the case at all. They're just not employing them anymore. I mean, I wouldn't say that's necessarily true for everybody, but we have found evidence that this is uh, it replaces jobs in some cases. But oh, you're... also, sorry, carry on. Oh, go on. Well, I was just gonna say another of the, the kind of the pushes for these technologies is that they're argued to lead to more sustainable agriculture. But the evidence is a little bit patchy uh, on whether that's actually the case, because, okay, you might be putting less chemicals into the soil. So precision agriculture, for example, what it does is it maps your fields and it tells you that these sections of the field don't need as much fertilizer as those. So the argument is that you're putting less chemicals in. Uh, So that's one thing. There's not a huge amount of evidence that that's a big difference over the course of a number of years, though. Um, It's all about making the land, the soil uniform across the entire farm. But then another argument is that what it does is it promotes farms getting larger. And obviously then ecosystems are being kind of minimized as a result of that. So it just depends which way you look at it, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, I I just think I have one way of looking at it and that's they're complete greedy bastards and they'll, they'll say anything in order to get away with continue to be cre- complete greedy bastards. And we're, yeah. we're very, very naive if they say, oh, you know, the reason we want GM is so we can put vitamin A in the rice. We're really concerned about poor people. Aren't you concerned about poor people? Mm. Don't you <laughs> think about poor people? Why are you trying to stop us doing GM? You hate poor people, don't you? And these, these sort of- they t- turning it around. Yeah. Clever rhetorical tricks to go. No, see, the problem is you're a complete greedy bastard. Yeah. <laughs> just stop yeah, yeah. And take that mask off. We're not listening. You are a greedy bastard. Stop being a greedy bastard, and you will suddenly have far less appetite for all of these things that you're trying to tell us are a terribly good idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And, and 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 what 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 um, you know, you're saying just now about people uh, being replaced what people the technology is doing what people used to do but actually it isn't because because what people used to do is weave a wonderful fabric between selves and the landscape yeah yeah of course and the technology is doing the total opposite of that The, the technology is coming through and hacking away at all these little fibers and threads that used to exist and making sure there can be no fabric between people and land and actually when when we um when we stop and look back, we're going to see where did this start going wrong. It started going wrong when we started depleting and, and hacking away at that fabric between people and land. That
1: connection, yeah, that's very interesting. Actually, I think about that a lot in terms of you know the role of foraging and being in in nature in that way. But it's it's a, it's important to think about it in terms of agriculture as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. And also, you know, the impact of making things uniform. What's that doing? What's that doing to the environment and also to our understanding of the land and, and the environment?
0: Well, I think I think the uniformity thing is the same point because because uh, this this connectivity that exists within life systems, it's always a connectivity of many many things being connected in many many different ways. You see, so it is, it is the same point when you start saying we're going to have fewer things and the connections. OK, there may be fewer, but they're going to be great big pipes now. You know, loads of stuff can go mm-hmm. gushing down that pipe. But guess what? It's one thing going gushing down that pipe. You know, it's fertilizer going into the ground. It's water being put, put out through an irrigation system. And then it's carbohydrate coming off that field. And guess what? It's money going into people's bank accounts through these great big arteries they've got called profitable enterprises, you know. But, you know, when, when – so, I mean, I'm just saying it's the same thing. As soon as we move from diversity to, to uh, simplicity – Again, we're hacking yeah. away at the fabric of life. You know? uh... yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, so, so what, 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 are, what are your kind of lines of inquiry that 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 you're working on at the moment? And are you are you managing to find a, a a sort of common thread between what you're able to work on academically and 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 what you're doing personally around the foraging and that, or is that not? That, yeah, you know,
1: well, it's just... it's good timing for you to ask me that question because um, I think it was around six months ago that it just suddenly sort of occurred to me like a light bulb moment you know I'm constantly feeling torn so my day job is research in rural it's not if you think about it, it's not that far from my interest in in foraging although looking at precision agriculture on big farms seems quite distant from thinking about people's connections with nature and foraging and all the rest of it but with the last two projects that I've picked up and we've got more of a focus on the smaller farms and the crops um, and they have maybe a, a slightly different relationship with the land. And it just got me thinking, you know, and, and the funding opportunity popped up um, where I thought I could actually do some research on foraging. Why do I have to feel so torn between my, my day job and my weekend job? Or You know, it's not just a weekend thing for me. It, it permeates my thoughts all, all of the time. I'm absolutely obsessed and passionate about foraging and wild food. So why don't I try and integrate that into what I do? Because having that kind of passion um, in the day job can only be a good thing, you know, to actually sit down and feel driven and and want to write a paper on something. Not that I'm saying I don't with all the other stuff, but yeah, just to bring some freshness. Uh, And I also see some themes that seem to be important that could be approached from a research kind of point of view. So I put in a funding big, it didn't get funded, but I'm lucky to have the the support of uh, a fantastic Line manager who's enabled me to to carve out a bit of time to pursue some research anyway. So it's just fairly small scale at the moment. But what I'm interested in and what I'll be looking at is the different perspectives and, and values and cultures around foraging and what people think it means. And uh, in the UK, there seems to be a lot of um, difference of opinion about whether you know even whether we should be foraging in the first place, which I, I find incredible. And there's even tensions, as I know you're aware of, Miles, around access to land for foraging purposes, say, in the New Forest, for example. That's quite an extreme example. Things are a lot different up here in Scotland. Mm. Um, But you do have these clashes of of values um, and often between people that are connected in the land in different ways. And you think, well, we should be allies. We should all be on the same side. It's about protecting and, and being ambassadors for these natural environments, isn't it? So what I want to do is just to sort of like dig underneath these these different perspectives a little bit and try and understand them and maybe even bring people together to to try and come up with some shared values and to sort of exchange their their knowledge and their their um, their values a bit. I mean, it, it, one quite obvious example is uh, we have quite a lot of Eastern Europeans um, living in Aberdeenshire and. They're natural foragers. I mean, they understand wild food better than a lot of people, you know. The only people I ever meet when I'm out foraging, foraging on on my spots, obviously they're not just my spots, you know, um, are Eastern Europeans. I've met Polish people, Czech people, Bulgarian people. And I've got a lot of respect for their understanding of, of all of that. In fact, it was a Czech friend who introduced me to mushroom foraging in the first place. So I have a lot of appreciation of that. And then there's also this kind of fear of wild food that you get in the more native population. And so, you know, you get these big contrasts. And I don't think it's quite as bad in Scotland, but I certainly hear in in England that people have been approached. And should you be taking that, you know? Um, Why are you taking the mushrooms there for the animals? And I think it's quite fascinating because we are, of course, animals as well. So why shouldn't we be entitled to a share of that food too, you know? Um, At the end of the day, it's all about this kind of disconnection that seems to have happened between us and the land, as we were, I suppose, talking about with the agriculture example too. Um, And I'm quite interested in exploring that a bit more and thinking how can we actually reconnect people a little bit? I'm quite passionate about this because for me, I lived out in the countryside for years, but it wasn't really until I started foraging that I felt connected to the forests, to the riversides. I felt connected to my, my own garden because I've been growing food here for years, but foraging really gave me a new sense of a meaningful connection with nature, which went beyond just walking the dogs or, or something like that, because you have to understand those habitats and the ecosystems in a bit of detail to really understand what you look you know how to find things and
0: and so on it's more than that though isn't it you 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 um you get into a different space i think as a result
1: yeah yeah i agree
0: i mean you do understand it differently in the sense you're saying you have you could tell people about the certain facts about the ecology but i think where you are in relation to that piece of land is isn't it? It's, it's totally different once you've once you've been somewhere, and, and that's that's um, that's what you've been doing while you're there, like gathering some food and going back again. And
1: yeah, yeah, it's. Um, I think maybe it's difficult for me to put it into words how it feels, but it is. It's like an emotional connection in a way. I feel like foraging for me has two sides to it. On the one side, I want to share this knowledge and. Becoming a foraging instructor came from the fact that people saw what I was doing They wanted me to teach them, so I started with, obviously, friends and so on. And I get a lot out of that, obviously, mm-hmm. sharing and reconnecting people to that um, and then seeing what they get out of it. But then there's this other part of me that loves solitary foraging because it's this kind of I don't know, it's like therapy almost, you know. I just love going off on my own. And I'm not even a solitary person. That's the weird thing about it. Mm. I'm, I'm not really a loner. I've always been very social. Um, and I most of the time would choose to spend my time with other people. But there's just something uh, – I, I say solitary. I've usually got these two dogs with me, of course. But um, just being in that environment and connecting with it on my own, I've had some quite profound experiences, which – right might be quite difficult to put into words but um I think the first time it happened was it was a sort of very um mixed emotional experience because I actually got lost in a forest which wasn't even that big which seemed incomprehensible um but getting lost in the forest caused me to to sort of stop and and sort of sit still in certain parts of the forest and to sort of develop, in a way, a new understanding and appreciation of that particular place. I, it took me four hours to get out of that. <laughs> I mean, I, I couldn't tell you how big it is, just a few acres maybe, kind of walking. And eventually I started recognizing, oh, there's a, a badger set. I recognized that, okay, and I eventually found my way out. I also found my first ever set during that time. Worth being um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Um, and it turned out to be one of my most kind of fruitful spots for, for seps. Uh, and I really fell in love with that forest. Um, and something quite sad happened a year ago. It was clear-felled. Ooh. And that was the first time I felt a real kind of emotional jolt in my heart about something like that happening, you know. Not just because of the seps, although obviously, you know, they, they're gone now and, and that was rather nice. But that had become quite a special place for me. Um, And interesting speaking to local people about that, because that was, of course, it was a spruce forest. um, And a lot of people will tell you, well, it's just a crop, you know, it's just a, it's not native, so it doesn't matter. But actually, that forest had been there for probably around at least 60 years And it was planted quite widely. So there were lots of beautiful little paths going through it, gorgeous little places. Um, People walked their dogs there for for decades. And so to local people, it was a loss. But more importantly, I think, was um, the fact that actually I I found some rare species in there. I found a red data list um, fungi in there. And it was... A diverse ecosystem even though it was a spruce forest not all spruce forests are made equally you could say Mm. but there's this snobbery around native not sorry non-native species i've noticed um particularly you know from a sort of conservation approach non-native species are not valued but they have a different value to me because of
0: those experiences i suppose Mm. i mean what what i would tend to um be thinking about in in trying to talk about this this same sort of thing of what are we um what are we doing that's more than just a fact finding mission or or a practical endeavor functionally you know the acquisition of food or whatever what is actually going on um and I think it's really interesting that you 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 said about being uh, solitary in that space and you're not a solitary person yeah it sounds to me like that what what you're doing there is not solitary at all it's it is it is it is communion it's
1: communion with a a different community right yeah exactly um with living beings Mm -hmm. and that's something i'm exploring in more detail at the moment i'm um, reading a book by stephen booner if i'm pronouncing that right the the secret language of plants or the the lost language of plants, or something—I can't remember. It's a fascinating yeah, book. Um,
0: yeah, I've haven't read it thoroughly yet.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was Monica, Monica Wild that that put me onto that mm. after a similar conversation. You know about um, well, yeah, you're actually you're in a community when you're in a forest, even if you you know you, you're not alone. So how do how do you maybe learn to understand that? Uh, those life forms in a bit more detail. Um, yeah, it's just something I'm just starting to, to kind of try and get my thoughts around a bit more at the moment. It's a bit of a new territory to me to think about the language of plants and the communication between different species in that way. But, um, you know, Monica gave a, a talk at the Association of Foragers about the kind of signaling and communication of, of plants and how we might even pick up on that. So that's what started this interest off for me.
0: Yeah. Luckily we recorded that. I'm probably gonna do a, a chat with Monica and use some of the footage from that um that talk. It was pretty interesting. Yeah. But yeah. The bottom line for me is that that there's there's no such thing other than when we get into this absence thing um that seems to be promoted and in and, and, facilitated by technology and certain ways that go with that certain ways of being or rather not being you know that, that there's no such thing as a non-interpersonal space you know that, that that somehow or another is all interpersonal space and i i i can't mm. claim to understand that i just think that or, or to be able to i say can't claim to understand i mean really i can't claim to be able to explain it or or or, or map it out in in, in words in, in particularly <laughs> easily understandable words although i'm I'm working on trying to to uh, to make sense of it, I guess. It, but but even then, that's probably uh, the wrong approach. It's, it's um, more true to say that 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 um, I feel it's possible to just enter into that more, rather even without understanding it. That 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 there's um, there's uh, a way that we used to be, you know, the way that people used to be, and.
2: Yeah.
0: I think people did used to, without ever questioning it, experience the whole of the physical world as an interpersonal space. And you know, of course, there's a big discussion on the animism that's, that's, that's unfolding at the moment in a lot of different circles. And and, and I guess that's the kind of thing. But the, the trouble is that animism is a term coined by some Western guy that was trying to describe how Indigenous people saw the world. So there's, there's issues in using that term. Yeah. But, but anyway, I think that's the space that we're starting to kind of not even, it's not even that we're starting to enter it in a way, it's that we're realizing that we're in that space. Yeah. There's all the people around us. That,
1: yeah. <laughs> so it's a slow realization, I think. Yeah. You know, because I've been foraging for years, but it sort of slowly dawns on you or you, you know, you develop this understanding over time. And I, you, you said something quite interesting uh, about dwelling. Yeah. and that me to sort of think about what's the difference between something like foraging and just going for a walk in that same you know taking your dogs for a walk in that same space yeah. and foraging actually slows you down so dwelling has a number of different sort of definitions or meanings doesn't it but I suppose one of them means to dwell in a place yes. which is not the same as walking quickly through it uh-huh. and just stopping now and then to take a pretty photo or something it's different and foraging i think that might be partly why it is so beneficial is because it slows you down it's it stops you in your tracks and and sort of what's the word immerses you in that world a
0: bit more well it's it's funny because the the um my personal journey around foraging uh it's um it's kind of parallel to and in in time, it certainly has has been parallel to my um, relationship with Ali, my wife, because we we basically I, I was always a mushroom forager, but when Ali, she knew the uh, the wild places in Kent far better than me. I've I've been in Canterbury at university and knew some woods just on the edge, and that's as far as I'd gone. But she would discovered all these amazing places. So getting to know Ali was. Also, getting to know the Kent countryside because she just knew these amazing walks. Oh, and, brilliant! And she knew a few bits, like she she knew a wild garlic spot, and and I'd never eaten wild garlic. You know, so, I was like, I'm a forager, but I'm a I'm a mushroom guy, and you know, I do mushrooms and berries <laughs> and this and that. But she's a forager as well, is she? Well, she the, the first the first sort of date we ever had, which wasn't officially in a date, but uh, a date, but it was the first time we deliberately spent time together, having met through mutual friends. She was uh, um, going out to pick some elderflowers to make elderflower cordial. That's the first oh, thing brilliant. we ever did like, was, was that. But she was just, just bits and bobs. Not really is the, is the real answer to that. She's an uh, elderflower, and she knew about this wild garlic. I don't know if she'd ever even harvested it, but she took me to this spot, and we harvested the, the wild garlic. And then she was kind of a, a partner for something I've been meaning to do for a long time, which is learn to identify plants, basically. So we would start taking a wild yeah. book out. And then she bought me a book by Carluccio called Carluccio Goes Wild. And that was the key that unlocked everything.
1: Oh, right. wow. Okay. Yeah.
0: The recipes were so simple and there was only a few plants. Yes. Yeah. Find one of the plants and then do Carluccio's res- recipe and invite friends around. And it was just such mm-hmm. buzz. Yeah, it was amazing. It caused such a. Yeah. St- can't believe you went out and foraged this. This tastes so good. Have you managed to cook this amazing food? And we said, well, you know, it's these amazing recipes, actually. And, and so yeah. it was, that was the whole thing but at the time we we um, were kind of pondering some some thoughts and ideas and what came out at the time was like really like a parable about uh interpersonal space and it's taken me a long time to like, kind of go full the full journey to to get to this because the sorts of things i'm talking about now like this animist thing for want of better terms that just was that It was so far from my experience until very recently in terms of, when I say my experience, you know this stuff's been happening all your life when you wake up to it. But in Mm -hmm. terms of noticing it and actively going after that and and seeing that as something that's available, you know, the sense of being, you know, watched when you go to the forest or the sense of being welcomed when you you go to a place, you think, actually, I've realized that all along, but I've not been conscious of it. Anyway... But I've been quite dead to all that stuff, is what I'm trying to say. I've been busy building a foraging business, learning the nuts and bolts of the plants.
1: Yeah, all the stuff. practical stuff.
0: Very functional. You're
1: missing that kind of that connection. I think I'm in the same place where it's just starting to kind of fall into place a little bit now. Yeah, yeah. just that understanding that that's there's something that's worthy of further exploration. There, you know.
0: And and for me, I've I feel like it's dawned on me that that is the most important thing that's happening. But, 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 but in terms of this, this little uh, idea, train of thought we were exploring at the time, what, what it was, was like you're walking down the road and you stop and pay attention. First of all, you notice something, then you pay attention to it, and then you respond to it. Now, it might seem a bit bizarre, especially for people who are upset about the idea of picking stuff and eating it because you think you should leave wild nature alone and, 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 and all of that kind of perspective. But for me... Well, I realized that if I stop and pick something and take it home and cook with it and, and so on, that I'm actually participating in the life cycle of that plant and that that plant is being worked into my whole fabric of meaning and memory and, and practical experience and then my body when I eat it. And, and, and so, but it was just that first thought that when we, when we notice, we, we pay attention and then we reach out and touch and gather this thing into our life that this was like a parable for, 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 um, for the interpersonal space of responding to other people. But it's so funny. It yes. just has this idea, and I've got it in a journal written down, 2003 I think it was. I've gone back and looked at it recently quite a lot and just thought, wow, you know, that's like a little seed that, that could potentially change the world, that idea. If you yes. threw it back, you know, because, because I'm, I'm now realizing um, just how much there is in that, yeah.
1: But, you know, this seems fairly kind of left field and revolutionary to many people that might be listening, but do you not think that sort of maybe a couple of centuries ago people would, or maybe longer, I don't know, in the case of the UK we seem to have become quite disconnected from that kind of heritage, but yeah. do you not think that this would have been a more everyday way of, of thinking at one point Point in our in our history when perhaps we were more dependent upon the land in that way.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's uh it's it's again, it's our it's our it's our rightful home, you know. To 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 view the yeah. world's way is so ordinary and basic. To, yeah. That way, but we've become exiled and and uh, and almost like excommunicated from the church of the forest. You know.
1: Yeah, where uh, more so. <laughs> Probably. I think more so in the UK than in some cultures, Yeah. which is interesting. And I suppose we can make many theories about why that might be. But that's when you get these kind of fairly horrible clashes, culture clashes or clashes of values about um, foraging. You know, so there, I think there, there's been some examples that I've picked up on from maybe from England. I've not heard yet in Scotland where... People have been accused of commercial foraging because they have a big basket or a big bag full of, full of mushrooms. But these, in some cases, I think these were Eastern European people who have a culture of picking the mushrooms when they're in season and then preserving them in many different ways and using them for them and their families throughout the year. So because, I suppose, I don't know, a, a, a ranger or something might not have that understanding, they look at a big bag full or a big basket full of mushrooms and they just see commercial. They think, no, nobody's going to eat that many mushrooms in a meal. Well, no, they're going to be preserved and they're going to be used throughout the year, you know. Hmm. So I suppose that's the kind of thing that I'm interested in exploring. And I'm still unsure about what you bring as a researcher apart from answering questions. um, And I want to construct it in such a way that it actually has a voice and, and can contribute something to this ongoing debate or discussion about whether we actually have a place in nature, whether we should be allowed to enter those spaces and take food from them. You know, but we could talk about that for a long time. I could certainly talk about that for a long
0: time. No, I, think it's, I think it's really good though, because I mean, I, I would think one of the questions would be uh, to try and tease out the sense that, that we've been exploring just now, you know, that, that, you know, do you just see this like a supermarket shelf, you know, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to get my stuff and I'm going to take it home. And now I've got some stuff. Or is there something else going on when you go to the forest and then when eating the stuff that you dried in the autumn or when you're drying the stuff at home, what's, what does that, what's happening there? Is this function? Are you just acquiring stuff or, or is is something being played out here that involves the the relational kind of aspects that we're trying to touch on the way of being in the world that we're trying to touch on. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, I think that that's a great idea, Miles. I I might steal that for the research because Um, I definitely wanted to speak to a range of different, um, actors, if you like, people that are coming at it from different angles. And of course, I want to speak to people who forage as well and understand what they experience. Why do they do it? What are their, you know, what the benefits, what the, what their values around it, it hadn't occurred to me to talk to them about, you know, their preserved wild foods and what, does that reconnect them back to their experiences when they were harvesting the food, you know, or is it like you say just they're just putting them in a in a casserole and that's the end of it? I suspect that it's more than that. But trying to sort of unpick what people are experiencing and, and the potential benefits to their well being as well through going through
0: these kinds of experiences. I mean, I just I just know that the, the sense I, I don't think I can be alone in the sense that I get increasingly while I'm kind of exploring this thing, it's all about the space that we're in when we, when we do this and, and how different that space is from another space, like opening yeah. something from a plastic wrapper and you know what, what is going on there? What are we doing? You know? and, and, yeah. And, 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 and I, I just feel increasingly that when, when I, drink that first bit of birch sap of the year you know when i when i eat those rose hips as i'm walking through this piece of land i like to eat rose hips and just chew down on those crunchy seeds it i've it, it, developed quite a tasteful anyway it doesn't have to be roses it could be blackberries anything the plantain says you know that 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 act is it is uh, an act of communion and yeah it's intimate as having sex you know it's like or 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 I don't know, I thought, oh, you can't get more intimate than that, I guess. But, you know, it, it, for me, with my body, I feel so, so like, you know, it's like I'm kissing the land and I'm, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm stroking the land. I'm being embraced by, you know, in this act of gathering and eating. I can't yes. be alone in having sense. No. I might be yes. alone in, 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 in thinking it's such an important thing to try and articulate it, but I can't. You
1: know, in a way, those plants want us to do that, right? They yeah. produce fruit for a reason yeah so i suppose there's a big difference between somebody going and taking every last bit of a, a plant that's that's growing and not being kind of sustainable or thoughtful about it but actually picking mushrooms taking fruits eating them we are i think probably communing with those plants in a way that they want us to right yeah and i
0: i'm that's not part even... of their reproduction yeah and and to be honest, just to be clear in my own sense of what's going on, I don't have a sense that there's somebody there that's like a, a, a lady I'm having a chat with that is the rose bush, you know. It's, it isn't... I mean, I'm sure... Not I, like that. I, I'm not. Well, I'm not belittling or distancing myself from that. It's just, for me, it's more like the land. It's just like, actually, I'm communing with, with the place. That's what it is for me.
1: Yeah, so it's more of a kind of holistic, like...
0: That the whole thing not, is
1: not gaia as such but it's like everything is connected rather than individual plants are well communicating
0: i guess yeah and i'm not saying they're not it's just that it's just that for me i mean i i've, I've done it with my daughter we've gone somewhere and i've said i just feel welcome don't you and she said i know exactly what you mean daddy we we stood there yeah. try, trying to figure it out maybe we shouldn't but we did stand there sort of saying well is it the trees welcome us is it the grass welcome us is it the microbes in the soil yeah it somehow.
1: How do you separate that? How do you separate that out? How do you begin to yeah. do that? You know. But I have had conversations recently with people about communicating with trees that were quite interesting. And I think probably set me on this path of, you know, my instant reaction years ago would have been to sort of snigger maybe. But
0: well, too, to be honest, I've, I've I've been very close to this whole kind of field, you know, to be honest.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And how you view the world as a forager I think changes that
0: yeah sure
1: um but you know unfortunately for where I live there's an awful lot of birch um and then there's an awful lot of um forestry stuff so I'm doing a lot of foraging in these different kinds of environments we have some forests that are mixed deciduous but there's less of that I'd say um but beech trees tend to line the edges of a birch wood or a spruce forest or a scots pine forest so it's like that so some of the times when I'm, if I'm kind of feeling anything towards the trees, it's almost apologetic, you know, like your 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 neighbour's been hacked down, I'm, you might be next. I mean, it's a funny one, because like you say, you can feel a sense of being welcomed, but humans haven't been the best caretakers of these environments, have they, at the same time? And we are representatives of those humans, I
0: suppose. Yeah, I know. But there's there's perhaps a there's perhaps a sort of recognition of, of where people are coming from. I guess you know if 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 we took it that far, but
1: yeah, we go with a basket, not with a kind of chainsaw.
0: Yeah, but I mean to go back to that thing, um, how you see it, like in terms of because I think there is a lot of there's a lot of disturbance that goes on. And because we're so geared towards the aesthetics of our experience of the outdoors, I've had some conversations with people where I, I thought we were on the same page, but but this aesthetic thing um, and, and just a way of looking at harvesting. Um, so basically, I mean, obviously we are a commercial foraging operation. I don't really do very much about towards that now. Um, got a little team and. They just get on with it, and I'm, I'm kind of doing other things, basically. But I've had to think about it in terms of w- what we do and comparing that to what goes on actually in wild ecosystems. And actually, the thing is, these plants, in terms of – because most of what we do is salads and greens, right? So okay. So we go in and we, we, we take uh, – we're going and take the, the sometimes as much as 50 kilos of seaweed. That's quite a lot. I mean, we'd have to go a few spots to get that, but we're out there to, with that, so our our shopping this, as it were. Yes. We need that because we've got orders and whatever. Um, but if you compare that to what, what is part of the ebb and flow of the life cycle of those plants and through evolutionary history, of course, you'd have had herds of grazing animals coming in and eating the thing right down to the ground, and we still see that where cattle have access to salt marshes. You know, right, this, right. The way that we pick is actually incredibly uh, sort of uh, gentle in comparison to grazing animals because we're after the good leaves that the chefs want. You yeah, know. yeah. The small ones and the, yeah. So anything with, with too much discoloration or anything like that, we'll leave it there. And so the, the plant, when we leave, you can probably tell if you look closely that we've been there. But, um, you know, we are selective. Whereas, whereas, so yeah, I think it is an interesting thing. And obviously, people would say, "Well, this is a space." You know, I've had these kind of conversations with people. This is this is a shared space, uh, you know, and we want to come in and see our thing untouched, you know. Whereas you're coming in and foraging, and now it's been touched. But I think, you know, it's it's an interesting debate because you know here here are people with different needs and different wants with regard to using that space. And the question is, you know, whose voice is 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 uh, is going to be the loudest in that in that that conversation in the end, uh, and this has come up quite a few times on the podcast, it boils down to the fact that in the end, we will have to get back to managing these spaces as common resources and reach a consensus. You know, But when you, when you realize that part of the deal, that if we don't harvest all that food from here, then we need to be plowing that place over there
1: mm-hmm. and
0: things in a different way, which means that there's a lot less room for other species to have a home. Whereas when we go in there, if the dog walkers and the bird watchers and everybody else can, can just not get quite so upset about the fact that we did pick all the big, nice glossy leaves of the seed beet and so on. And so now it looks differently today than what it did yesterday and realise that, okay, but that's part of this bigger picture that we do need to eat. And Mr. Dog Walker and Mrs. Bird you're gonna go home and take something out of your fridge. And it didn't come from nowhere. It had a relationship it, yeah. to whether other species had a home or not, you know, the stuff in your Absolutely. fridge. Absolutely. Yeah, and it probably flew halfway across the world as well. Which means that some people won't have a home tomorrow because their land's going to be flooded because of climate change. So.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. These things are taken way out of perspective. Um, one thing that you hear is, um, well, you know, um, I saw I saw this gang of people and they took all the mushrooms and you think they couldn't have taken all the mushrooms. They couldn't have covered every square foot. Of that huge forest. I mean, what about all the stuff in the undergrowth? What about all the stuff that you can't access? They've taken a fraction, if anything, and you know, um, these things are taken massively out of perspective. One of our fellow Association of Foragers people, I think it was Josh possibly, was saying that he was, um, he was leading a foraging walk, of course, and he was walking along this, this hedge, this hedgerow or riverside or something, just saying, you know, it's very important that we harvest sustainably and we don't take everything and all the rest of it. And then all of a sudden, the sound of strimmers was heard behind him, and the council guys are walking behind him, just trimming the whole lot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I think it's all about perspective, you know. Don't take all the field motion from the verges. Well, you know, the next day the mowers are going to be in, aren't they? So foragers are just, uh, have a tiny impact on these things compared
0: to more industrial processes? Well, I think when you consider that taking all the mushrooms, or take, well, mushrooms are not the best example, but, 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 because it's not, you know, farmed mushrooms are not putting pressure on wild land, but somebody could probably tell me what's potentially the problem with farmed mushrooms, I don't know. But, but that's certainly with plants, that, that, that it's actually the gentle thing to take all the leaves, which are going to grow back, and in most cases, nothing else is going to eat them anyway, it is a really gentle thing to do because you are yeah. then uh, stopping this violence of, of, um, of industrial farming from, from having to happen to the same extent. And what, what, if, we, what if we ate all the dandelions, in the whole of you know, the British Isles, what if everybody ate all the dandelions for the next year? How much, what would be the impact of that? And people think, oh no, that's terrible. No, no. I mean, what would be the positive impact? So, yeah. all of a sudden, we've got this massive salad, and all those dandelions are going to grow back, so we can do that several times in the course of the year. Of course. You're Ooh. never going to get rid of all the dandelions. Well, never. You, won't, you won't get rid of them by picking the leaves, I can tell you. You won't. No. They, they, Is they, that
1: possibly a, d- a difference between sort of um, commercial or um, cultivated plants and foraging? Because I can't think of many cases where in foraging you're actually taking the whole plant and killing it off. Usually it's coming back the next year, you know. Maybe with a, in a few cases, with landowner permission, obviously, you, you'll take the roots of something like wood avens or pig nuts or something. But, you know, those things, are they have a large spread, so you're not going to take all the plants anyway, you know, and they're going to reproduce. And, you know, these are generally plants that are very abundant yeah. and i don't think as foragers we really pose much threat to to well, most cheese at
0: all i'm 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 actually increasingly irritated by people that are bandying around and we never say it we never say that our stuff is sustainably harvested because i don't like the presupposition right i, yeah. I want somebody to come and tell me about the unsustainable harvesting that they know about and i'm not saying yeah. it's possible right i'm just saying it's not happening like in 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 terms it's of almost, it's almost impossible to do it i think well there are ways that you could do it and I, I mean i it's worth saying this again i've said it a lot of times but like with with ramsons the wild garlic yeah a foraging friend of mine uh did did this thing with the with the seed pods where mm. and they call them ramps and capers they're not capers but they look a little bit like capers so the, the little seed pods that, that form the, after little,
1: the, the little round ones yeah
0: Green things yeah And he was harvesting for, um, to to sell to restaurants. But he was going in there, it's kind of the same as you would for the leaves. You just, you you can, you can crop the leaves fairly thoroughly and they all grow back. So rather than around all day for the sake of taking one leaf off each plant, there's not a reason to do that other than the aesthetic one. I mean, fair enough, if you see it that way
1: yeah yeah i suppose the very slim chance that you might grab some um lords and ladies or something
0: you've obviously got to be careful but the fact is you could run a mower across the ramsons and you can't i know people have tried to get rid of it from their garden doing exactly that and the only way is dig it up you know you can't you can't get rid of it by mowing so he'd had that kind of take it all approach uh for 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 this patch of leaves because he's seen it just keep growing back and not no harm occurring so he did the same to the little seed pods, and he found that after two or three years, the, the garlic was, was really depleted. And he, uh, so
1: it's actually depending upon self-seeding as much as it is its roots.
0: Those seeds needed to go down, but obviously not all of them were germinating, and all the ones that germinating were not necessarily getting a foothold because there wasn't enough room. So yeah, yeah. the approach of taking, and I forget what the number was, but say he took a third of what was there. Um, I'd have to check that, but, but, but he found no detrimental effect on the population we've just taken this small amount now that is the only example that I know of of um, of wild garlic being depleted uh, but unfortunately, there are people out there um, who the, 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 that message doesn't seem to be getting across to them i 've actually got a particular restaurant i really and i 'm not going to name and show them but I really do need to make contact i've just been wondering about how to to, to say it because i I know that, that that they are not doing that. They go out there. I've I've spoken to people that have done worked as stagiers at this restaurant and they're told go out and take them all. And I've also spoken to people who work in the forests in, in, in that area who've said that that these these uh these patches are being depleted. The, the 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 wild guys. So there is one example of the way you can do it. But the right. only way you can do that is if is if you are which must be happening with these guys, It which doesn't reflect well on them. You are not noticing the feedback mechanism. because yeah, my, yeah. my mate Andy noticed the feedback mechanism. I've since put that on my website saying, look, this is an example of how you can get it wrong. There's not many of them, but this is an example. And so you respond to that feedback mechanism. Now, if, if you're not responding to that feedback mechanism, then you, are, you really ought to be named and shamed in a way.
1: It suggests that they're not really properly immersed in, in those habitats. You know, they're just going in and out.
0: Well, they don't care because the, they must know there's, there's less wild garlic there. And, and I guess they're not putting two and two together. No? They're not, they think, oh, well, perhaps wild garlic does come and go.
1: Oh, maybe it didn't have a good year. Well, why didn't it have a good year?
0: You know. So that is an example. I mean, I've just answered my own question in a way. Like, that is an example of unsustainable harvesting. But the fact mm-hmm. is people are applying that to, to CB and wild garlic leaf as if they had some badge of righteousness, you know, that they somehow have, have, have become this enlightened you know, monk after years of, of, of self sacrifice, they have become a sustainable forager. No, you're just picking the same as everybody else does, and you're wanting to get some kind of brownie point as if you were doing something spectacular. You know, you, it's, yeah. it's 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 just nonsense in my book. The the, uh, the the point is that not foraging is unsustainable. That's my point. Yeah, people, yeah. What, that's uh, more yeah, more unsustainable, than I would argue. Yeah. Well, people say to me, I'm worried about over harvesting. I say I'm worried about under harvesting. <laughs> because we've got this massive resource out there and all the time that we're not using it a we're getting sick because the plants are there to to could be massively slashing our our, our national health bill if we were eating them mm-hmm. uh, b we 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 we're, we're getting mentally ill because we 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 we're, we're doing everything industrially and shopping and, and eating rubbish and and what that does to our, our souls but most importantly we are we are having to rely on industrial food because we're not using the sheer abundance, you know I mean? Um, for example, apparently the, 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 um, the biomass of seaweeds around our coast is more, is greater than the biomass of trees growing on the land in, in the British Isles, apparently. I, I forget where I heard that, but that's
1: a... I've heard that as well. It's a massive resource.
0: Yeah. So I got in a bit of a soapbox there, yeah.
1: No, that's, that's what it's all about. I, I agree with what you're saying. I read yesterday that, I, I don't know why, I was um, Googling bog myrtle. I love bog myrtle. Wow. Um, and I was Googling it, and I found this article that had been in the Press and Journal, which is our local rag in Aberdeen, in maybe 2014, about how bog myrtle had been all set to be the new industrial crop. For Apparently, it's it was plant boots were planning it to take out boots. a constant.
0: It boots. was boots, yeah. Was it? It was a product that, 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 that got to market that Boots were stocking for a time. Highland Natural Products, I think, was the company.
1: Okay. It was in a face cream or something, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was going to be for face creams and sort of herbal stuff. It obviously has herbal medicine applications. And obviously, it's got brewery, uh, beer brewing applications but something fell through and it didn't get industrialized. And I sort of have, I don't know how I feel about something that I've got such a connection with that I consider to be on, on the edges of bogs in the wilderness being sort of grown industrially like that, but maybe it is a resource. And sometimes I don't think I know the right answer on some of these questions, you know?
0: I think it's a really interesting one that, that around around the bog model. I mean, I'm not sure what, what that article was suggesting because, um, my understanding was that there was going to be a way for this vast resource that is there, rather than it being farmed somewhere else, but but it being harvested from where it was.
1: No, uh, I think they were talking about farming it. Okay. And change it. They were talking about changing their land in order to farm it. it would presumably they uh, must mean making the land more boggy.
0: Yeah. I guess. I don't know it that well, but doesn't it grow almost like a monocrop in in, in where it grows wild? Isn't there rather a lot of it?
1: Yeah. It's sort of locally abundant. But then, you know, it's not like, I don't find it everywhere in, say, the Cairngorms, but I find it in certain spots. But where I find it, I find a lot of it.
0: I mean, I should should dig out the guy. There was this guy that ran Highland Natural Products. um, uh, Douglas Hardy, I think his name is. Oh yeah. I couldn't find him last time I was trying to get hold of him. Um, but he knows the whole story around that. I think they got badly shafted at. It, so I think they they got it to market and then something pretty underhand happened and and um, and all their work was ended up being for nothing. Um but Oh, that's a shame. But Douglas's thing was always that there were I mean he was doing stuff with uh, extracting essential oils from, from sitka spruce I think as well. Oh, I remember I remember being out in, the, in, in some middle of nowhere up near um, Bewley. There was this uh, wild harvest gathering in, in Bewley that, that Reforest in Scotland put on.
2: Oh, yeah. Out uh, yeah.
0: there in the middle of nowhere with Douglas. And he's, he's got this uh, essential oil uh, extraction thing with a great big um, tank on the back of this thing that was pulled by a tractor. So they would go out to where people had been thinning out the spruce and so on.
2: Chuck- yes. Yeah
0: branches inside and it was spit out essential oil oh wow and and, and they take it back and, and that was set up for myrtle and all sorts of things it was it was beautiful you know that this yeah fairly, fairly sort of what a great way to use sort of the waste from that forestry industry as well you know yeah exactly I mean it's, it's this sort of multiple I just think if we could to me the argument for commercial foraging uh and it doesn't have to be commercial foraging. It could be, you know, like heavy use by the local people. But if, if, if by definition we're talking about areas which, which are not densely populated, then you've got a whole bunch of stuff in those areas which could be tens- potentially used or the land management could be slightly tweaked to encourage bogma or without actually farming it but somehow encourage yeah. it or whatever. Then there's an argument for a commercial operation. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Well,
1: something like spruce. I mean, you could never deplete that. No. Spruce as a wild food isn't used in such a way that you're eating bundles and bundles of of the needle, and you wouldn't be able to do that. You're extracting the flavor from it, aren't you? Or you're using the spruce tips and sort of pickling or or drying or or turning them into sort of sherbet and things like that. So that's a very sustainable example of using wild resources for a commercial um on a commercial basis i think and there are lots of fantastic examples in scotland and i know in england as well of small rural or small businesses that are making whether it's gin or liqueurs and sort of food products and preserves and so on or even as you were suggesting like face creams and herbal remedies and so on i think it's fantastic and, and those things obviously they don't just create a business for someone, but they contribute to those local rural economies as well.
0: Well, there's proper rural development. In, uh, I mean, like the, the example that always springs to mind for me, um, whenever the term rural development comes up, it's just how, how much more enlightened they are in, in Finland, you know, because the government there, mm-hmm. I, I have a friend, um, Anu, who who uh, we did a podcast with a few weeks ago, actually, but, but she's up in Lapland running a school that, empowers people to, to develop a business around wild plants and it could be anything, you know, oh, that's
1: brilliant.
0: anything they like. And it's funded by the government and it's more like a mentoring scheme than a school because she'll get right into what they need and she'll go and visit them where they are. And, 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 and the point is that the, the Finnish government is wanting people to stay in rural areas and not have everybody move to the city, you know, which right. what government in the world is there that that's, that's so against everything like the government of India and, and all these other places, you know, is still totally taking a sledgehammer to their rural economy. Right, the yeah. Big, can come in and do the industrial thing. So it's, yeah. it's the same as it's been going on for thousands of years, is the people are being pushed off the land and, and moving into cities. Um, and yet there's Finland with a, a well-established, not going anywhere anytime soon, but actually moving forward and developing government policy around rural development. You know, And I, I just think, so you know, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm I'm really on the edge of lots of soapboxes today. But um, what we said earlier about the uh, the um, the fabric between people and land, you know, that's what I hear when I hear rural development. You know, that's that's you know, and th- and there in Finland, you've got a government that's right behind it, right behind it. Such a such an amazing template. They put research oh,
2: yeah.
0: into these potential products. They funded the whole birch sap thing. That you know, there's a lot of Finnish birch sap coming into into the UK now, and that's because they funded the research in how to preserve it. They, they, and they, in the end, they did this aseptic thing rather than any Amazing. chemical thing. Um, and they've got the whole kind of kit that one particular business is using. And it's all a bit hush-hush. They're, they're not wanting to share their secrets, but, but they have a whole aseptic process from the very outset of drilling the trees to the last thing of it being in the bottle that's sealed. That that means that they've got fresh birch sap preserved with no bacteria in it. But that's That's just incredibly clever. Yeah, and the government funded it is the point. Yeah,
1: Yeah, well, that's the point definitely. A friend, well, a colleague of mine from Latvia, which also has some very interesting stuff around foraging. He's doing research on foraging, and he's looking at small-scale sort of woodland-based businesses that um, that are using wild foods. Uh, in their products and in their businesses. But he's just about to travel to Finland to do some comparative research there. And he was saying similar things about it being this incredible example. And it's very much sort of accepted throughout the culture that this is part of everyday life. But um, I believe that he might be stopped from traveling due to the coronavirus, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and if when, if we're able to go ahead, then we're, a uh, colleague and I will be in Latvia in um, Around a month and a half, and we're hoping to go up to some of those woodland enterprises and speak to people and, and understand a bit more about what's going on there too.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, well, we're, we're maybe um, maybe we should talk again for the podcast about that because I'm sure it's it's, um, it's stuff people would be dead keen to hear.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, once I get my teeth into, I'm just really beginning this research now about the, the different perspectives and values around foraging. Um, in the UK, but then also using these opportunities to compare that with different cultural sort of perspectives, you know um, but once I've got a few findings, then maybe we can talk again and I'll have a bit more meaty material to to share with you on that.
0: yeah, 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 yeah and and I mean, I think one of the really important things about that is is that these are enterprises and and livelihoods. Because you know there is this prickly, edgy thing, and I, I don't know quite how it's happened. I guess it is the interface between this and 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 people's perception of of what conservation is for, and so on. Um, that it's you know should be like untouched by human hands, and and mm. sort of wicked bad humans need to not go and pollute this space now because we've polluted so many other spaces. Look,
1: look what we've already done, sort of. Thing. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. Whereas this, sorry, gone.
1: No, I just said maybe maybe that's where it's where it comes from
0: yeah and and so if if you sort of turn that on its head and say, "Well the issue here is not people going in and 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 touching it because they might ruin it it's actually people not touching it that's ruined it, so all, yes. all the stuff that that is causing the problem is industrial, you know it's industrial development it's it's yeah, uh, yeah. pollution from industry and it's it's um industrial farming, all of these. Yes. Are fundamentally about disconnection and and therefore disruption of ecology because ecology is 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 this is a sphere of linkages you know that's that's what is happening in ecology. Um,
1: yeah, I think this is what you were saying before, isn't it? It's um if the machine is, it acts as a barrier between the land and our hands almost, doesn't it? Mm. It's sort of um, a go-between which, when not getting our hands into the earth as much
0: anymore perhaps that sort of contributes to this disconnect yeah exactly we're not we're not well we're not being a species basically all all the other species in order to live everything they do when they eat shit whatever build a nest everything they do has linkages with with the overall functioning of of that ecosystem it's 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 one thread in fact yeah threads a squirrel is many threads within that ecosystem not just one and Mm. and and we used to be many threads, but, but, the, but the point is for me that, that as a species, you know, I coined this phrase, at least I think I did, um, that humans are a keystone species um, because, because we have the potential to, 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 with what we do, actually facilitate many, many different kinds of linkages or many different kinds of shaping of the environment, which means that more stuff is going on because we're there rather than less stuff going on because they're there. So- mm. It For me, it's all about us being a species, whereas industrialization is about us being this weird non-entity sort of thing. We're not present. Mm-hmm. We're not being. We're not participants. Well, what the hell are we? Well, the only question yeah. that answer I can come up with is, well, we're turning into a machine ourselves, you know. We've got yeah. this abstraction in our human intellect, and then we ourselves are becoming an abstraction, but it's an abstraction that's like a black hole, you know. It's sucking all the connections out of the world that were there and leaving more and more depleted. Until eventually we implode on ourselves and disappear and become extinct, and then of course everything can get back to normal eventually. After yeah, (laughs) so that doesn't happen. You know, what what if what if we were just a species again, and worked out how to be, you know, the ones we are now, not go back to ten thousand years ago and pretend that yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It doesn't have to be some historical reenactment, but I think we are seeing, aren't we? I mean, maybe we're lucky in that we're in that kind of um, community already, but um, certainly seeing more kind of movements around that line of thought popping up, but they are, of course, still very, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, revolutionary left field, whatever, you know, it's not a mainstream way of thinking, is it? But, I do think that people are, I do think that people are getting more interested in finding ways to connect with nature and they might not know why they want to. Mm. Um, this huge sort of interest or growing interest in foraging that I'm seeing, yeah. or maybe I'm seeing it because um, I mean, there are, in my part of Scotland, there's, a, there's another um, two foraging instructors nearby, but, I suppose I'm reaching new audiences or new new markets that might not have had it on their radar previously. So in a way, maybe it's creating a market or creating an interest that they didn't realise that they had. Um, but I think people have been craving some kind of connection. They might not know why. Yeah. And so to sort of, um, you know, this this recent funding bid that I had, um, one of the things that came back was, oh well, you know. The UK's interest in in foraging is primarily a sort of foodie thing, isn't it, or a fashion thing? I don't think so. I think there's more to it than that. And even with people that are new to it and that are wanting to get involved, I think they might not necessarily know what they're going to get out of it, but they are, they realise they're going to get something out of it, which is not just food on a plate. So it'd be interesting to see if this, this interest keeps growing, but foraging is obviously just one way that you can sort of restore this connection yep and it's obviously the way that i know most about but yeah
0: or that i've experienced the most yeah and i think if we if we have a few people that have livelihoods around it that is also um it's i think it is essential you know because you know it's like that guy in the forest that does the coppicing, you know he cuts the trees down and makes woodland products and yeah I, there's something about that you know but, i mean I've, I've said this before on the podcast but um People say, you know, I want to see the wolves back in the wilderness. I want to see the beavers back in the in the valleys, you know. And they so well, I want to see the humans back in. Yeah. But and, not just as tourists. Not as tourists. No, like that like that guy coppice in the wood. That's yeah. what I feel. When I think about all these woods around here, a lot of them are coppice, but it's just for firewood. And, you know, and I burn logs. Yeah, yeah. does seem madness. This is hardwood. This is, and they burn all the brushwood and, you know, it. it it's better than nothing. At least the wood's being yeah. used. But like, this is crazy that managed it's just- and to some
1: extent. Yeah, we have a local uh, guy that ha- has. He's got the house on the edge of the forest down just outside of the village there, and he is exactly the man that you just described. You know, you always find him somewhere in the forest. He's got a little quad bike, and you know, he sort of collects firewood, but he's sort of composting bits, and he's 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 helping out the forest, isn't he? You know, and he's in he's. He's part of
0: it. definitely. a participant. Yeah, and yeah. And to me, I feel the same way about that as I do the idea of walls back in Yellowstone National Park. You Think, oh great, we got you know, we got a human back in there where, where you know the, the whole thing can start to to come back. You know, whereas you've got things like the Woodland Trust, who I'm um, vehemently opposed to their their approach. You know, they're planting trees everywhere, and uh, they don't do any management. That means this is another non-human space. But of course, they'd argue that. People are going to do all this aesthetic stuff, and they're going to go and look at trees. They're going to walk past trees. They're going to feel the wind in their face, all of which I'm entirely for. But it's it's like a weird, it's like a monastic thing, you know? It's like uh, it's like the troubadours in the in the uh, medieval period, you know? These these yeah. men would sing love songs to pretty women. I just think, guys, this is actually pretty, pretty just odd, you know? Yeah. I'm not going to actually get involved. Just don't look at women, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This whole troubadour thing was about celibacy and romance. I just think, no, let's let's have. There's a weird
1: double standard there, isn't there?
0: <laughs> let's actually get into the forest, see it, and touch it, and eat it, and t- yeah. let's really be in. You know.
1: I've heard, you know, you and then this 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 guy with with his um, woodland clearing activities and and all the rest of it, and he's really part of that space. But yeah, I have heard people saying, why should he be allowed to get that firewood? You know. <laughs> And that's very similar to some of the negative stuff that you might occasionally hear around foraging, isn't it? You know, why should you be allowed to
0: have those mushrooms?
1: Because yeah. we, we belong in those places. People have just forgotten that, I
0: think. They've forgotten it. And somebody being there is a reminder. If, if anybody, it's just it's just people are making a mistake about what they're looking at. They're, they're looking at this as this is like an extractivist thing, you know. Someone's gone in there to take stuff. Yeah. It do that. Leave it there for the squirrels. You're, you're mistaking the thing. What this is is the advanced party to the humans getting back in. You know?
2: Yeah,
0: we're, yeah. We need to get back in. Somebody's got to take the first step. Yeah. pioneer. and you should pioneer. be saying, you know, it's it's a very friendly thing. is my bottom line is this is a really friendly thing. Like we're we're trying to get back into to 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 the the, the friendliness of the lands that's always been there to yeah. to welcome, sustain no. us.
1: That doesn't have to be a, a kind of um, a negative thing. Everything, um, everything alive is part of the food system and always has been. So yeah. to, th- to, to, to feel like we're somehow, you know, to suggest that foragers are somehow um, damaging the land by eating those plants. Well, everybody eats plants, don't they?
2: Yeah. You have
1: to eat plants. Well, I have actually come <laughs> across someone who eats an entirely meat diet and doesn't believe in eating plants but that's a completely different conversation
0: well it'd be <laughs> if those animals hadn't eaten plants so i mean he's you know
1: well that, uh, so you're eating plants <laughs> yeah anything we haven't covered
0: well i think what we've covered we've covered well good
1: yeah well i thoroughly enjoyed that chat it's given yes. me lots lots more food for thought that i can now take into to this research where i where i try and be this completely unbiased social scientist in this space that I'm clearly biased in because I'm very pro-foraging, and of course, I have my own values around it, don't I? But what researcher doesn't have their own opinion or bias on the thing that they're researching? So
0: every point of view is somebody's point of view. That's that's what somebody said, and it just betrays. Yeah. It, it exposes the lie of objectivity. There's no such thing as objectivity, but it's just. It, yeah. It's, it's about being wearing our presuppositions. You know, been aware, you know, that, that I actually see the world yeah. this way and therefore I'm approaching it from this point of view.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then and then you've kind of done your disclaimer and, and Yeah.
1: But then of course I'm open to hearing your point of view and I need to hear that so that I can understand where you're coming from kind of thing.
0: But if we all if we all are aware of what's underlying what we fundamentally do believe, we come believing things. Um yeah. then we can have a much more fruitful discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yes. Not that we have any issues around different presuppositions that have been flagged up here. I think we're we're singing from the same uh, page, as it oh, were. Sheet.
1: Yeah, I agree. Yeah.
0: Definitely.
1: Let's just uh, let's hope that we can uh, fly the flag for getting back into those places, and more people might come and join us. Eh.
0: That's it. That's it. All right. Well, lovely talking to you. And um, yeah, you too. Yeah, we'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening to this week's World Wild podcast. And uh, as, I, as I mentioned last week, I really encourage anyone that's got children in their life, um, especially during this lockdown period, to check out the Foraging for Kids Facebook page that we've started. And uh, as I also mentioned, we are working on a, a, a web page or at least a, a section of the World Wild podcast web page, which is a website which is about to be launched, which will uh, be devoted to foraging for kids. There's some great resources there, people posting up videos of their kids foraging or just little little, uh, small short videos to inform and educate kids and hopefully inspire them to to get started with foraging. Although, to be honest, it's it's, it's probably as much as anything aimed at parents. But um, there's lots of ideas there for you to get the kids outside um, and engaging with green spaces through uh, gathering and eating wild food. And on that subject, there's a plant I'd like to mention for this week, for those of you that, that want to go out and, and and seek out something new. And it is the leaves of the lime tree. So lime is not the the uh, the source of the lime fruit this this is the the lime otherwise known as linden which also makes linden blossom tea which is a very pleasant uh, and mildly soporific herbal tea those blossoms will be out in uh, in a few weeks time but for now the young leaves are really really lovely to use in salads they they're very um sort of soft they're, they're soft to the touch and they're just slightly gelatinous in texture so you can add them to salads or you can even make little as they, as they open up and get a bit bigger, you can use them in the same way as vine leaves to wrap little parcels of, of rice or anything else you want to make that you would do with um, vine leaves. So they're a really, really common tree, but I guess all I can do is is point you in the right direction here. I'll leave it to you to find a, a source of images and more details about the tree. But if you can find some lime trees, uh, I would say it's a source of tree greens. It's a super abundant source, so little... little uh, little leaves for for greens or salad. And just, you know, it's almost a, a limitless supply. If you find two or three lime leaves, lime trees in your vicinity, you'll certainly never go short of greens and salad at this point in the spring, even if you didn't forage um, a single other plant. Okay, well, that's it. And uh, thanks again for listening to this week's World Wild Podcast.